that I'm excited about because um, the more I read John and the more I uh, study it uh, carefully, I, I get to see how this book is written to a particular people who have decided to follow Jesus and how it brings about our new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, um, you know, we, we started the series talking about there were some challenges with the Gospel of John. We were challenging you to, to, um, uh, to, to, read, uh, to read the Gospel all the way through at least once sometime while we're in this series, uh, to read ahead the section, right, for the week, right? And next week we're going to be in John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 1 through verse 21 next week. So read ahead the section for next week. So maybe uh, if, uh, the, when you came in, you should have gotten one of these uh, handouts. And if you got one of those, you can go ahead and write that down, John 3, 1 through 21, so you can know what to be reading ahead for next week. But then also, I think, and I think uh, most importantly, right, is this praying about how God wants to use this text, right, this series, uh, these scriptures, this gospel, to bring about transformation in our uh, lives, because God does. And, and, and um, there's something powerful. Is, is I've been in conversations recently, several conversations, about just prayer in general. Uh, as, as often in, in, the, in the Christian life, um, you know, if you grew up in the church, you might have been taught to pray, and you might have memorized prayers as a kid, and you just kind of recited them and went through it. It's just something you were supposed to do. Um, but as you become an adult, you might be asking, like, what, what's the point of praying? And, and in fact, prayer may often, um, um, uh, in light of the concerns of life, sometimes we find that it gets pushed to the side or it gets shortened in its length or it's not as consistent and regular. And I believe very firmly, and I'm learning this, and God is teaching me this, um, uh, particularly this year as, as I uh, am stretching myself in the area of Scripture reading and prayer, um, that, that prayer is a tool that God uses to bring about, uh, uh, to shape us, to bring about new life within us, right? So it's not just about getting what you want or, uh, or telling God what, what you're missing out on or, or asking God to do something or letting God know how you feel. Uh, God already knows how you feel. He needs, knows all the things you need before you ever express them. But prayer is about uh, placing ourselves before the God who created everything. And allowing that God to make us new, right? If, if God could make everything, surely that God can, can reshape us. He can mold us into his beautiful image, and he can make us what we were created to be. And so I want to challenge you that as we go through this series, uh, maybe there's something that stands out to you. On that, that little handout you got on your way into the door, right? Write, write something down. Like Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's a scripture. Maybe it's a, a quote. Maybe it's something like that. Write, write it down and spend some time. Uh, throughout the week, praying about how God wants to use the Gospels to transform us, because after all, that is how God uses prayer. He uses it to shape us and transform us. Amen. Hey, well, uh, if this is your first time here visiting with us, welcome to Tri-Cities Church. In the seat in front of you, there are uh, these cards. We, we, um, we don't really have an official name for them, connection cards. It's a way of connecting at Tri-Cities Church. Uh, it's not the only way of connecting at Tri-Cities Church, but it is a way of connecting. Uh, and so uh, if there's any kind of prayer request that you have or um, or, or um, if you want to know more about following Jesus or any of those things, hey, you can, you can write it on there. You can check it on there. Fill out whatever information you feel comfortable. And when we, when we share in uh, communion and offering, which will be at these four tables around the room, when we do that at the end of service, you can just drop that card in the bucket. Uh, and we will, be, uh, we will be gathering and uh, sharing in times of prayer with you, right, for whatever you're uh, facing in life. All right. 
So let's pray, and then we'll get into our message for this morning. God, we give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to open the Scriptures. God, in them we find life. For your word is life. And how privileged we are to read it. How privileged we are to be acquainted with it. To memorize it. To hold it in our hands. To hear it. To store it up in our hearts. And God, we just pray that it will come alive in us. And that through it, you will bring us to new life in Christ Jesus. And God, as we open the scriptures this morning and as we read this section in John chapter 2, God, I pray that you will help us to gain understanding, and not just understanding for knowledge's sake, but understanding so that we might be more familiar with the way that you've called us to live, that we can see and identify distractions and things that tug our hearts away from you, that we'll find confidence and boldness to clear out those things, to remove those things until all we see is you. And God, the boldness and the courage to pursue you with all of our heart. God, I pray that you do that in us this morning as your church. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, last week, um, uh, Brian, Brian Amick preached on, uh, at the beginning of John chapter 2, the story where Jesus turned water into wine. And one of the things that I appreciate most about that story, because if you remember, uh, that when they ran out of, of wine, Jesus told them to go fill these huge jars of water, right? Uh, and, and Jesus' mom is just like, do what they say, right? Don't ask questions. Do what they say. But the part of Brian's message that I appreciate it, y'all saw I almost fell off that stair. Uh, the part of Brian's message that I appreciated uh, most was this, this quote he said, faith-seeking understanding, right? He talked about when, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, right, we, we do value obedience, right, obedience over understanding. So we, we obey before we fully understand, but it's okay for our faith to seek understanding, right, that we don't have to check our brain at the door, uh, that we don't have to just say, just blindly say, okay, I'm going to follow everything and I'm just going to disregard any questions that pop up, but we follow Jesus, we make him Lord of our life before he answers all of our questions, but then in the process of following him, the answers to some of our questions become clear. But, but um, let, let me say this, though. Um, God's main priority isn't, isn't answering all of your questions. All right, God's not, that's not, that's not the, the God's, God's heart isn't to get all your questions at answered. Um, but the Bible does tell us to come and seek and find and knock and the door will be open. And there's a God that has all the answers to all the questions of life, even the most pressing questions of life. And what the scriptures are challenging us to do is to make that God Lord of our lives, right? To follow that God with all our heart, to choose to be obedient to that God first, right? And it's in that journey questions arise. But it's also in that journey that, that things become clearer and God answers our questions. And we begin to see that the way of the Lord is far superior than any other way. And that's one of the key takeaways from that passage last week. When Jesus turns water into wine, he's introducing them. Because you remember they, they said, what, what did it say? Uh, something like that. It, the wine was, was some of the best wine that ever, ever had, right? And the Bible's introducing us into to the fact that what God does is so far superior to the ways of this, this world. 
And so the challenge of scriptures is, is make Jesus Lord of your life even before God has answered all of your questions. Now, to accept Jesus as Lord, we use that word a lot. To accept Jesus as Lord means to uh, give him authority over everything, right? To say, all that makes up my life, all the things that are, I, I give you authority over everything, every area over my, of my life, whether that's my uh, financial life, my relational life, my work life. I give you authority over every area of my life. So the way I relate to people, the way I handle my money, right, the way I deal in my relationships, I'm giving God authority over that. I'm letting him lead me in that area. And so the challenge of scripture is to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. John is writing so that we might believe in Jesus, make him Lord of our life, and then have new life in his name. That's what John teaches us. He's all about. Now, um, this word authority, though, I, um, so, so let, me, let me just kind of backtrack a little bit. Uh, th- this, is, this is probably closer to the beginning of the year, um, because I began the year reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So I was in, uh, I at least had gotten to chapter 7 when I bumped up against this word authority in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and so in, in Matthew's Gospel, you have this section in Matthew 5, 6, 7, where it's um, the, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching and he's preaching and he's talking. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, let me just kind of flip there real quick. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 at the end, it says, When Jesus had finished these words, this Sermon on the Mount, um, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so when I got to that word authority, I, I, I paused for a second because I didn't really know what it, what it meant, right? I, I, so the, the question for me was, what does it mean to teach with authority versus not teaching with authority? So what exactly was he doing that the scribes weren't doing? And so when I was reading the Scripture, I was trying to, and this is, is hard for me, and I imagine that we all face this challenge when reading Scripture, is not just read it for, 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 uh, for just, just to get through it, right, from one chapter to the next, but to read it to gain a better understanding. So when I bumped up against that word, I began asking, what, in, what, what, is, this, what is this authority? How is he teaching as one who has authority? In fact, I'll be a little bit transparent. I, <laughs> and, and as I go back and reread, maybe I wasn't reading it clearly, but as I reread, I kind of see some things. But um, as I was reading it, I'm going, he didn't really say anything that, that, that profound, right? Um, <laughs> That's my own insufficiency, right, speaking. But, I mean, I'm, I'm going, well, I can preach that sermon, right? That sounds like something I might have written myself. So what, what is it? You know, me and Jesus, we preach about, you know, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, so I'm, and I'm going, I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, what, what does it mean to teach us one who has authority? So I paused there, and I began looking in different commentaries and trying to gain an understanding of his authority. And what, what I began to see is that the scribes, right, the people are used to teaching to the rab listening to the rabbis and the scribes teach the scriptures, right? And so what they were doing was they would take the scriptures and then they would teach on them, kind of like what we do on Sunday morning is what the rabbis would do. And then the scribes would take what the rabbis said and the rabbis' teachings, and they would teach on what the rabbis had to say. And so a a, a scribe might stand up and he might say, well, a rabbi Joe says this, right? And then uh, rabbi Clint says this, and rabbi Jeremiah says this. And so this is what you should do, what these rabbis have. So he's almost like offering a report on uh, what the rabbis have taught from the Scripture. And, and it's almost like, um, uh, let's see, it's almost like if, if you're writing a research paper um, or, or, or you are, uh, it's almost like the difference between writing a research paper where you're basing your paper on the research of somebody else 
or doing firsthand research where you're doing like experiments and drawing your own conclusions, right? If you've done the firsthand research, the firsthand experience with it, right, your experience is a lot more authoritative than just saying, hey, this is what uh, Dr. So-and-so and this is what Dr. So-and-so, but me, I'm just working on my bachelor's and I'm just writing this paper for a grade, right? Um, so what Dr. So-and-so said and what Dr. So-and-so said is a lot more authoritative than they, uh, me just kind of just trying to make it through this class, right? Uh, and so I'm reporting on someone more authoritative. So what Jesus does, though, if you go back in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to get past this authority part, but I think this is crucial for us to understand. Um, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, there was a section right before we, I came up here. I was underlining this because it just kind of stuck out to me because I'm still kind of working this out in my own head, if you will. Um, but um, in, in like uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, listen to what Jesus says. He says, for I say to you, right? That's where that, that, ver- that chapter, that verse starts. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 28, he says, but I say to you. And in, um, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, he says, but I say to you. In verse 34, but I say to you. In verse 39, but I say to you. Verse 44, but I say to you. So constantly he's going, hey, this is what the rabbis have said. Um, <laughs> You know, th- this is what they've taught you, but I'm not just reporting on the rabbis. Yeah, take what they said, but I say to you, right? Um, and, and so he's speaking as one who has an air of confidence and conviction that is unlike the rabbis, is not just reporting, right, on what the Scripture says. In fact, as we see in retrospect, he's writing Scripture himself, right? His word was word of God. And so when Jesus taught, he taught as one who had authority, an air of confidence and conviction, and he spoke with the voice of God. And so some of the things he did, the people just couldn't understand how this poor country boy was having this kind of authority. How this poor country boy was able to say, but I say to you. Instead, what they were seeing with their own eyes, with human eyes, they're going, he should be saying, well, the scribe told me that Rabbi Joe said that the Bible said, and that's the way he should have been teaching. But he's not doing that, right? He's saying, I say, and he's issuing word of God to the people in a way that is extraordinarily bold. And there's times when Jesus will say something or do something, and immediately, right, the Jewish leaders, the religious establishment will be trying to take his life because, after all, this poor country boy, right, with no kind of education, no degrees behind his name, right, no money in his pocket, shouldn't have this kind of authority because our society says that he, that he doesn't. Uh, And over and over again, if you read through all four Gospels, this concept of authority just keeps popping up again and again and again, this concept of authority. And people are questioning Jesus' authority. Where Where is it coming from? And so when we get into our passage this morning, what we see is that Jesus exercises his divine authority, right? His authority that comes from God. Now, it all begins with Passover. Now, Passover goes all the way back to uh, Old Testament, I believe even Exodus chapter 12, if you will. Uh, and you, can, you, can, you can read about it there. We're not going to get a whole lot into it, but we are doing a Passover Seder feast right here at the church that's going to be on March 26th. Um, and we're, we're doing it right next door in the, the uh, cafeteria, the Fulton Leadership Academy. And, and, and so Passover, if you read about it in Exodus, um, Passover was one of the most significant religious holidays. Um, and, 
And, and it commemorated God's rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, right? And none of us have ever been, um, uh, n- none of us have ever been in the kind of slavery that the Israelites were in. And, and it's hard to imagine the hardship of life in slavery. In fact, if you read that story in Exodus, the Bible talks about God blessing the Israelites even while they were slaves. And the Egyptians recognizing that God was blessing them and then making life harder for them. Um, And so things kept getting harder and it felt like they couldn't make any progress forward. They felt trapped in an evil system, if you will. And God, by his power, rescued them from that. And the freedom that they experienced and the miracles that they witnessed along the way to freedom were beyond mesmerizing and transforming in their lives. Now, they were humans, right? You might be going, well, I've read that story. You know, <laughs> their, 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 their experience of freedom didn't last long, right? They were, just, they were crazy. They complained and they whined and they turned their backs from God who had tur- split the Red Sea, uh, you know, split the sea in half, right? They turned from God. They did all that. Hey, they, they were human. They were flawed. But hey, Passover commemorated. It was the holiday that they celebrated to look back at God's rescue of the Israelites from slavery. Now, for us, communion or the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every Sunday was Jesus taking that Passover and giving it new meaning, right? So he gave it new meaning in the sacrifice of the lamb, which is Jesus Christ himself, right? The, the bread it, that represents his body, right, that was broken for us, and the juice that is his blood that was spilled for us, he gave it new meaning to say, now in Christ, you are no longer slaves to sin, but you're free in, in Christ. And, and that's why we, that, I mean, that's why we celebrate, right, that that's why we sing songs of joy. That's why, we, uh, that's why we follow Jesus with all our hearts. That's why we have a story in our minds that we just can't keep to ourselves. That's why we overflow with the goodness of God and we can't stop talking about it and being about it because God has set us free. There's times like the Israelites that we, uh, we begin whining and we place ourselves back into uh, slavery, if you will, uh, to, to sin because we are, we, we, we're human and we need to be reminded. And so God gave us communion to, to, to remind us, to help us remember that God has set us free. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, this passage that we're in this morning in John chapter um, um, two, uh, John chapter 2 begins at Passover. Let me just read that first verse. It says on, uh, no, I'm not there, uh, verse 13, uh, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so during Passover, Jews that were, uh, at least could travel, would travel to Jerusalem uh, for Passover. So um, hundreds of thousands of Jews would literally travel to Jerusalem for Passover. In fact, in um, when we read about Jesus, and we did this, I guess that was the end of the year last year, when we saw that Jesus at the age of 12 went to Jerusalem, that was more than likely for Passover. And so probably from the age of 12 or younger, Jesus had been making this journey to Jerusalem for 
for Passover. And so what Jews did is they would go up to Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of them, some estimates even in the millions, uh, would make this journey to, to Jerusalem. And the city itself would be filled with people all over the place. In fact, it was like chaos because it was a city that was, um, I, I, you know, I don't know, doubling, tripling, uh, you know, quadrupling, I, I don't know. It, it was exponentially increasing in size and population as all these people kind of flooded the, the city. And so uh, what we see happening in this passage is that as they would come to Jerusalem, where the temple was located, they would offer sacrifices as part of the Passover celebration to God. Um, and they would pay their temple tax. And so one of the things they needed, right, uh, was they needed vendors that could sell them a, uh, an ox or, or, or some sheep or doves that would be used in the, in the sacrifice. Um, because after all, it, it, it's already hard to travel by foot or caravan you know, from a couple of hundred miles away to Jerusalem. But if you're traveling with an with a ox that you're trying to keep under control or some doves that you're trying to keep in your little handmade basket and keep them alive so that you can offer them as a sacrifice, that's kind of, that's a little difficult. Um, and so, so it was natural for them to have vendors. And, and I've heard people re- preach this scripture and say, well, God doesn't like vendors in the church. That may be so. Um, But it wasn't just the the vendors being in the church here. It was important for them to have vendors so that they could, or it wasn't God opposed to vendors or commerce, if you will, uh, but because those things were necessary for them to be able to worship God. And the money changers that it mentions here, because if we go back to John chapter 2, it says, um, um, uh, I keep wanting to start at the beginning of the chapter. All right, let me get there. Verse 14. John, I'll start 13, where I started before. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at the table. So the money changers were about, um, so people were coming from all over, and they had different currency, right? And they needed to exchange. It's almost like if you go to a different country and you need to exchange some of your money. Um, so that you can have the right currency, so that you could pay your temple tax, right? And so that you could buy your ox or your sheep or your doves that you would offer as your sacrifice. And so these people, there, there, was nothing, um, there was nothing really evil in and of itself of these vendors being there who were selling things for people to offer to God as an act of worship. But, but what we see here, though, is that something happened that really set Jesus off. And, and this story is very peculiar if you, if you read it and you really try to imagine it. And one of the things that happened to me, and I can't remember when, I, I, I prayed. Um, there, there was a time in my life where I prayed to God. I said, God, please help the, um, please help the scriptures to come alive to me. Um, and, and, and God did it, actually. I mean, that was a story of an, like an answered prayer prayer, right? Um, um, maybe God's calling to tell us something. <laughs> God's like, I can do it. I can do it. Hold on. Let's see what song that is playing on this cell phone. <laughs> maybe that's a song God going, I'll do it. Um, sorry. That's the most singing you're ever going to get out of me. All right. So um, I prayed to God. I, I, said, I said, God, help the scriptures to come alive to me. And I found myself reading 
Um, again, my imagination only can take me so far. I'm just being honest with y'all. Um, but I found myself reading the scriptures with new imagination and almost imagery as, I, as the stories that are told in the scripture unfolding. And this is one of those stories, right? Because Jesus went berserk in the temple, right? When he walked up in there and he saw these uh, people selling these animals and these money changers sitting at their table, he lost it. The Bible says that he braided a whip, right? A scourge is, is what it says in this version of the Bible, that he took some cords, right, some leather cords, and he sat down and he's, he's braiding this whip. Now, um, in my imagination, I'm like, um, I mean, clearly people had to see Jesus, right? So he's there, and they're like, you know, handcrafted, you know, whips, you know, to control your ox, right? This, this guy's selling handcrafted whips. And so Jesus is over there uh, uh, braiding this whip. I imagine he's like, um, there's some of these scriptures, there's a scripture, um, in Psalms, uh, a song in Psalms, in the book of Psalms, that I imagine Jesus was probably whistling the tune of, right? Um, like Psalm 94. This is the one that was kind of, tra- I was tracking with at least. It's not on the slides. He says, pay heed, you senseless among the people, and you will understand, and, uh, and when will you understand stupid ones, right? This is a song that I imagine Jesus singing. Uh, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? In verse 12, it says, blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Blessed is the man that you discipline. And I imagine Jesus is there braiding this whip and just whistling the tune to that song, going, I'm, blessed. I'm about to bless some people, right? <laughs> blessed is the one you discipline. And Jesus is just like, somebody's getting blessed today. And so here he is sitting there, and uh, for however long it took for him to braid up this whip, right? Probably pretty long. Have you ever seen a whip, you know, six eight feet or so? And however long it took him to braid this whip and tie the knot at the end, sit whistling this song, blessed, uh, you know, are the ones that are disciplined by the Lord. Um, and then he starts cracking that whip. Like, and now he didn't hit, I, I, I'm assuming he didn't hit anybody with, with the whip um, because the, the Roman guard would have been there watching over this whole procession because their responsibility, especially when these kind of crowds flooded into Jerusalem, was to keep things under control and orderly. And so if Jesus would have done that, you would have heard of the Roman guard just coming in and just snatching him up fiercely like no one else um, Oh, gosh, I just had an awful image. I'm going to roll with it, uh, and this wasn't really planned. But if y'all know that movie Elf, that Christmas movie Elf, and y'all know at the very end of Elf, there's the, uh, the, the New York police officers that come in on the horses, right, that everybody's terrified of? Bad, maybe bad analogy, but that's how the Roman guard was, right? They came in mightily and strong, and when they came in went to correct what was wrong, they corrected it with military power and strength. And so Jesus wasn't, wasn't hitting anybody with his whip. He's cracking this whip, and he's making as much noise as possible to get people's attention. Then he starts turning over these tables, right? And these aren't these... Um, uh, these little plastic tables you get from Sam's and Costco's and Lowe's and places like that that we have today that are lightweight and easy to carry. These are solid wood tables on a concrete floor in the middle of a concrete temple that would have echoed for probably for a long way. It would have sounded like a gunshot when they went off. And so Jesus comes in and he cracks this whip. He flips over tables that probably have, because again, um, in the absence of glass and, and plastic and things like that, had jars that were filled with coins in them, clay jars. 
And when these tables flip and hit the floor, it sounds like a shotgun going off and these clay jars hitting the ground and the coins spreading all over the place. Jesus was making as much noise as possible. He went berserk. He, he just lost it in there. And, and then he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And so as I wrestled with the scripture this week, I'm going, what in the world set Jesus off like that? What was his frustration? What was his, his problem? They needed these people selling these things in order that they could offer their sacrifices. They couldn't travel with them. They had to have them. They needed to be able to exchange their money. But what we see in this passage that's happening that set Jesus off was that these things that were once outside of the place of worship at a distance where people would come and purchase their ox and purchase their sheep or purchase their doves or exchange their money at a distance, these things were coming into the very place that was reserved for the worship of a holy God. And what we see in this passage and throughout all of Scripture is that God desires a people whose hearts are broken for him who are focused on him, who are removing all distractions so that the only thing they see is God himself and his glory and his holiness. And what's happening in this passage is as these things begin to crowd the temple, the worship of God is getting pressed out. There's a, a, a psalm that I imagine um, the, the um, Jews would would uh, worship God with in the, in the temple. Um, Psalm 51, I'm going to read portions of it. I'm, I'm going to start actually before the, um, the, the, what's on the slides. Psalm 51, verse, verse 1. Listen to this, this, this psalm. Because this is one of the psalms I imagine when they would go to the temple, they would use to worship God. Listen to what it says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is a powerful psalm, a hymn of repentance, of turning to God. And I just imagine God's people having generations of singing this psalm and having themselves fall before the Lord in repentance in the temple. And then in verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, right? This is important, right? You do not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So what we see unfolding here in the temple, right? God's not delighting in their sacrifice, right? The fact that you saved up enough money that you could buy a bull and offer it as a sacrifice, right? Or that you might not have had as much to buy a bull, but you got a dove and you offered it as a sacrifice. God's not delighting in the sacrifices. The ritual themselves. He's delighting in a heart 
that is turned to him in worship. He's delighting in a heart that's cleared out all distractions and that the only thing it can see is God and his glory. And it's fully in pursuit of him. And when these things begin coming into the temple, what's happening is they're pushing the worship of God out and people can't see the glory and goodness and greatness of God. But what they're seeing is I've offered my bull, therefore I'm in good standing with God. I paid my tax, therefore I'm in good standing with God. I'm checking off these things which God delights in. Little did they know God didn't delight in those things. They were distractions from the pure worship of God. And so Jesus makes a scene, and he's teaching us that God wants people who will worship him out of a pure heart. And so, of course, the authorities, the religious establishment, had to come in and try to figure out what in the world is going on. In verse 18, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing this? Because these guys are sitting back, they're going, this guy's either uh, crazy, right? Or, or, or he just has some, uh, he has some extreme confidence, right? This authority from somewhere else. And they're going, hold on, hold on, hold on. You've, you flipped over our tables, <laughs> Um, you cracked a whip. The kids are in the corner crying because that whip was loud, right? The kids are always, you made our kids cry, right? Um, our, our money's scattered. Nobody could tell whose money belongs to who anymore. You tore up our stuff. You better show us a sign of your authority. So the religious establishment comes in, and they're like, you better make a prayer. And the, the thing that, I, that I, I think is fascinating here is they didn't, like, um, they didn't like come in what they, you would have expected them to do. It's just kind of come in. Well, in the Bible, they had a thing for stoning people. You, you, they they would have stoned first, asked questions second. Um, so they they would have just come in with their stones and just started throwing them, right? Um, but but they, they, they are a little curious um, and possibly thinking that this Jesus is something from God. But they're like, show us your credentials, right? Show us a little, a little evidence. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as authority that you're doing these things? Listen to what Jesus said as his evidence. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years uh, to build the temple. Boy, please. That's what they said. Boy, please. You don't get out of here. Uh, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, the greatest sign of his authority. His body, it was crucified. It was raised for people to see. His body that is alive that we have come to believe in and trust in the way of Jesus because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so for them, he's going, hey, you're going to see a sign. You're going to see a sign, all right. For us, we're going, we've seen the sign. We believe the sign. And what John is challenging us to do as people who have believed that the sign of God's authority through Jesus Christ has been shown, put your hope and faith in him and remove all things that distract you from the pure worship of God as creator and savior, provider 
and sustainer of your life. Now this word worship, um, because in our society, worship often gets reduced to something that happens on Sunday mornings. But what we see in Scripture is that God intended for all of our lives to be worship. We don't just worship when we come to church, right? We don't just worship when we sing songs together to God. You know, we say this is a worship service, or I went to church to worship, or I worshiped God at church, or just the way we use our language. Um, But worship in the Scriptures is used as a posture of the heart that serves as a compass for our lives. So it's a heart that's oriented toward God, and that, that heart that's oriented towards God directs the posture of our lives. And so anytime, right, whether I'm at work, or um, with my family, or, or in my neighborhood, or in Kroger waiting in the line is too long because they don't have enough cashiers, and I'm getting frustrated, and I just want to tell somebody now that they, I already had to wait this long, and they rang my stuff up wrong, and now I got to go back and get in a line to the return desk. Uh, worship worship is when the posture of my heart leads my life and those few choice words that came to mind are withheld because all of life is worship so anytime I act in obedience to God, out of a pure heart, I am worshiping God. And what John wants us to see uh, is that Jesus wanted us to clear the way from all distractions so that we could live lives that worship God out of a pure heart. Heart, And when we get into this, this the, the, even the New Testament as a whole, what we begin to see is the Bible's teaching that um, where Paul says, I think in, in 1 Corinthians 3, and then again in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you not know that your body is God's temple, right? And so it's not just that you're responsible for acting holy and worshiping when you come to church or when you go to the temple, which we don't go to, or where you're in sacred spaces, but your whole being, the Bible teaches us, has now become a sacred space. And this passage of Scripture is challenging us to say, what distractions have I welcomed or invited into this sacred space? What in my life is distracting me from the pure worship of God. What's the distraction that's there? John is challenging us to ask ourselves, what are my oxen, my sheep, my doves? Who are my money changers that have crowded their way into my life and are pushing out the worship of God. John wants us to write that question down 
and to <laughs> Wesley wants you to write that question down too, uh, and to carry it with you throughout the week, right? So that it's not just on Sunday morning where you're going, oh, nothing is causing me to push out the worship of God from this temple. But on Monday, right, when somebody cuts you off or on Monday when you're tempted to do something that you shouldn't be doing that's not acting in obedience to God, you're carrying that question with you, what in my life is crowding into this temple that is pushing out the worship of a holy God who deserves all praise and all worship. It's, it, it's, it's fine. Um, it's okay. Uh, uh, Jesus was full of grace and truth. So as we read through John, it's okay to not be there yet, to not be made whole and complete. It's okay to um, we're not perfect. It's okay to have sin and failure in our lives. But it's not okay for us to wait for Jesus to come in cracking a whip and turning over tables and yelling at the top of his lungs because we've been warned that that's what he does and pure worship is what he desires. And so the challenge of Scripture is, hey, mark these things in your life that are distracting you from the worship of God and don't wait for the whip in the overturned tables in your life. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks on this morning that we get to...